Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. If there's one thing that we humans know, it's that the totally legitimate process of evolution, and how dare you say otherwise, is the most amazing thing. Am I right? Starting from literally nothing, exploding into literally everything, and now just look at this hardy, robust planet. Look at the pinnacle of natural selection, the human Ah, yes, Homo sapien sapien. Uh, Too bad it's taken us this far for gazillions of years and eons of epics or something like that. But now, now everything is doomed to perish. Everything is so fragile. We're done. Game over, man. Game over. On today's episode, we'll just have to make do without water, and then we'll have to have a serious talk about that aura that's been hanging around you, and finally we'll cease to be... So stock up on that waterless car wash stuff, dust off your gas mask, and last one out, turn off the lights. Because the clock of life is wound but once, and no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. So we best not waste any more time. Here we go. Did you know that you never stop growing taller? It starts when you're born and you just get taller and taller until you eventually die. Also, did you know that if you're losing weight, you'll eventually get to zero pounds and possibly go into negative pounds territory? Did you further know that accelerating your car from a stop will cause it to attain light speed and even faster? How about the fact, fact, I say, that when you turn on a light bulb, it goes from dark to brighter and brighter until it's brighter than the sun, brighter than a nuclear explosion? Dan, you say, are you being held hostage? Is this a code? Or are you possibly having a stroke? Should we send an ambulance? (laughs) No, no, no. I'm fine. I'm just applying what apparently counts as logic these days. See, I have a handful of articles I'm going to throw into this segment because they all demonstrate how the prevailing thought seems to be that the way things are working right now is the way they'll always work. So if that light bulb starts as dark and gets brighter when you turn it on, I have nothing telling me that it won't just keep getting brighter and brighter because that's what it did when I turned it on. Likewise, if I walk into a room with a light on and I turn the light off, I can only assume that it will create a black hole where it will literally suck all light out of the universe. And no, it doesn't matter that the light bulb was on and apparently did not get brighter and brighter when I entered the room. All I know is that it was on. I turned it off, and now I've created a black hole. And for that, I'm sorry. Now, let me tell you what I'm talking about. Found on DW.com, a website with a tagline of Made for Minds. Huh. Uh Uh-huh. Headline. Can rivers and lakes recover from drought? Come on, now, first of all, capitalize the words in the headline, please. A headline is not a sentence. (sighs) Drives me crazy. Okay, so this is an article focused on Europe, but will somewhat travel around the world in today's review, as they're all 
pushing the, the same sort of insanity. So the tagline in the article is, quote, major rivers across Europe are at their lowest levels in years and climate change will only make things worse for aquatic ecosystems. But allowing nature to take back control can help fix some of the damage. Now, what I'm not going to do in this review is tackle the illogicality, if that's a word, of man-caused climate change. You can go back to a variety of my past episodes and find that info. Bottom line, we have the sun, we have the oceans, we have things like volcanoes and cows, we have God. To think that puny man is going to destroy the planet via climate is uh, laughable. It's, it's a nonsensical, arrogant viewpoint that places man as the omnipotent being of the known universe, and frankly, I can't logically see how being created by God can force a planet that God created with the natural systems he built in into a heat death by doing what God foreordained man to do with full omniscient knowledge of any effect on the planet he created when his creation did what he ordained them to do. So, in this article, I just want to cover the lack of logical thought, or the absence of even a dash of common sense, by various authors who are either clueless, fully agenda-driven, or maybe both. So the article says that rivers like the Rhine and the Danube are at critically low levels, and they're warming, which would make sense, as less water is more easily warmed. And it says that the European Drought Observatory is reporting nearly 50% of Europe is in a drought, 17% of which is in an alert status. It was some reports that this is the worst drought in 500 years. They then jump right into, quote, as we continue to burn fossil fuels, dot, 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 which of course will cause more intense, more frequent droughts, right? Now, the effects of a drought they cite are probably correct on the various ecosystems, including humans, that are dependent on what we have assumed will always be there in exactly the same way it always has been. They use Jose Pablo Murillo, a program officer at the Stockholm International Water Institute, as a quotable expert in this field. But they have a funny quote in here. The article author says, quote, Variations in both temperature and levels that are outside normal limits can. And then they quote Murillo, quote, Quickly increase the risk of drastic changes in the conditions of river and lake ecosystems. So, did Murillo refer to normal limits, or did the author? Regardless, I wonder if they can tell me what the normal limits are. And, follow-up question, how do you know? See, when you phrase it like that, it means that there are boundaries that the temperature is not allowed to vary outside of, but we're not capable of setting those boundaries. So what the author meant to say was, when the temperature and levels are outside of the typical limits, or the expected limits, or the limits we've seen in recent history. We literally have no idea what the limits of temperature and level are. All we can say is that we'd expect the Danube River to be somewhere between completely dried up and flooded to the point that it's just part of the ocean. And this is the biggest problem with the concept of man-caused global warming. There may be some temperatures globally that are warming. Let's assume that that's not in dispute. Does that mean that it will just continue warming for all eternity until we burn up? because that's the direction of what we see right now. And does that mean that the globe is warming outside of the limits that have been set? And says who? The global warming crowd isn't trying to keep the planet healthy or safe. They're trying to keep the planet the same, as that's what they're used to. And that's literally all they're doing.
Murillo comments that the longer an ecosystem is under high stress, the more difficult it will be for it to recover. He then goes on to give examples from the last few years of algae blooms, of stressed fish populations and rivers that are lower and warmer, again, than we humans have decided they should be. And yes, I understand the biology behind less water, warmer water, less oxygen in the water, etc. But the assumptions that appear to be made are that in millions of years, these ecosystems have never experienced stress like they are today. Of course, millions of years would be their worldview, which actually makes the case they're trying to make even more difficult. He's also pulling out the old trope that's been disproven over and over, that the poor planet will have a long, difficult slog trying to recover. Oh, if ever it can. And then we're supposed to panic in reaction to this warning. But how many times do we need to prove that wrong? Remember, polar bears were going to disappear, going to be gone. But there are multiples more now than there were when that warning was issued. And according to the climate Nazis, we haven't really done anything to change anything. The coral, specifically the Great Barrier Reef, is so vital and so fragile that if you even think about touching it, Vast swaths will crumble and die, and I think they shoot you with a harpoon on the spot. But just recently, studies came out that said the reef has more coral than has been seen in decades. It's doing just fine. The Ohio River at one point was actually on fire, literally on fire, because of all the chemical waste streams from industrial processes that were being pumped into the river. And that was an ecological disaster except that when they forced the companies to deal with their waste streams in a more environmentally friendly way, the river cleaned itself up to the point that you'd never know it was once a fiery hellscape. And that only took a few years, max. What about the Deepwater Horizon oil well blowout? Remember how that was going to destroy the ecosystem for decades or centuries? It was the biggest ecological disaster of all time and perfectly displayed why oil is evil. Except no, it took a few years for the oil-eating microbe population to find the tasty, tasty oil and clean it all up. The point is, yes, man can have a temporary input into localized ecosystems, but when we remove the specific input, the planet that God designed just cleans up, moves on, and thrives. So this article gives some helpful tips of what we can do right now to help our rivers. Like for instance, planting trees along the banks to shade the river and keep it cool. Okay, look, as part of my degree, I had to take a heat transfer class. I wasn't good. It's not my thing, but I do have logic still. If you put me in a closed system, which is what this planet is, like if you lock me in a room, then you put an intense heat lamp over my head and just wait, I'll cook relatively quickly. Now, give me an umbrella, or heck, give me a tent, something that will literally reflect the heat from the lamp, and wait. I'll still cook. You'll just need to let the room heat up. So they said that over the last 10 years, the UK has planted more than 300,000 trees along the banks of various rivers and streams. They say that the shaded water is up to 7 degrees Fahrenheit cooler. Now, I'd like to know, cooler than what? Unless I'm wrong, you don't plant fully grown shade trees, you plant baby trees, treelings, and they grow up to be mighty whatever you planted. So, in 10 years, they've grown into shade trees and cooled the rivers and streams down from, what, what they thought they'd be? 
from what they were 10 years ago? And how do you know the trees did this? I don't know. More to the point, if we're pumping heat into the planet, a closed system, if the planet is warming as they say it is, the rivers and streams will just absorb the heat eventually, right? The air, the ground, and the water will heat up through absorption, right? I mean, that's literally how the oceans work. They absorb the heat in the air, keeping our planet at a habitable temperature, unless the oceans get warmer than the air, in which case the transfer goes the other direction for the same purpose. They also suggest removing dams and weirs and other barriers, you know, that man has put in to redirect water to where it is or where it was needed. By doing this, the ecosystems can repair themselves faster, so they're saying that if we stop screwing with it, it'll work better. I mean, isn't that what I just said? Now, I don't think I'd worry about removing the barriers or anything like that, but yes, if we stop fiddling with the planet, the planet is designed to take care of itself. Now, the ecosystems and the waters that will dry up once the dams are removed, and the various downstream water users, like farmers and cities, that will no longer have that water, those may have some questions. Well, that's enough to get us started. Let's jump to another article, one that goes right along with providing the water some shade, this time in California. Found on usnews.com headline, California to cover canal with solar panels in experiment to fight drought, climate change. Okay, well, if you've listened to me for any amount of time, you know I'm not a solar panel fan. Maybe someday, but as of right now, they're useless from a standpoint of mass production of electrical power. But let's explore this idea a bit. So California has approved an experiment to cover aqueducts with solar panels. As the article says, this is, quote, a plan that if scaled up might save billions of gallons of otherwise evaporated water while powering millions of homes. So I don't know about the millions of homes. I'm slightly less than optimistic about that. But yes, I'd agree that if you keep the sun off of the water, the evaporation rate will go down. I still maintain that the water as a whole will warm if, in fact, the planet is warming out of control, but the localized evaporation would be less. But again, and remember, life sciences were a bane to my educational existence, but I did a bit of searching to confirm what I thought. The water cycle on this planet is a closed system. As in, we don't have water evaporating into outer space to be lost forever, and we aren't absorbing water from outer space. What we have on this planet is what we have. So drought is caused by lack of rain, right? Or drought can also be caused by lack of snow in the mountains that then melts during the summer season and flows down into the various rivers and aqueducts. Rain and snow will only happen when water evaporates up into the atmosphere and collects to a certain point and then However, weather patterns work, etc., etc., eventually the clouds that are full of water vapor drop that water somewhere. If the aqueducts are covered to stop evaporation, will that mean that less water will collect in the sky? Or at the very best, the evaporation will occur at some point farther downstream, right? And what will that do for rainfall or snowfall and location of the rain or snow when it does, in fact, rain or snow? In other words, is California because of their short-sighted, unscientific, unbiblical worldview, believing that what they're seeing isn't part of a cycle, but is an irreversible straight-line trend of heat and drought that will kill them all, 
is that causing them to take a knee-jerk reaction, incorrectly labeled a solution, that will end up hurting them even more, causing them less rain and snow, more drought, reinforcing their incorrect worldview that man-caused global warming is destroying the planet. Back in the 70s, I believe it was, the planet was actually cooling, or at least the godless climate alarmist said it was. The fear was the next ice age. We were all going to freeze to death. One of the solutions that was proposed was to paint every sky-facing roof, parking lot, and everything else black, and also shoot soot into the air, all in an effort to absorb more heat from the sun to stop the next ice age. Can you imagine what would have happened if we actually did that? But nothing has changed, as now we want to shade the rivers. And the proposal has been made to paint all of the sky-facing stuff white and shoot particulate into the atmosphere that would reflect the sun's heat in order to save the planet from burning up. We are a stupid people. All right, let's jump again, shall we? Found in the science and technology section of learningenglish.voanews.com Headline, Low Water Levels Uncover Many Hidden Objects. Okay, so yeah, if we drain the lakes, stuff is down there. It's not just an empty hole, right? So this article talks about plane wrecks, shipwrecks, unexploded bombs, uh, bodies, right? We're finding plenty of bodies as the water recedes. But the more interesting things for our discussion right now are cities, monuments, and other evidence of past civilizations that apparently lived, I'm assuming, as air-breathing, land-dwelling humans, as opposed to mermaids and mermen, on dry land where we say now that water is supposed to be. For instance, this article references the Valdecanus Lake, probably pronouncing that really wrong, where the level has dropped to 28% of capacity. And for the first time in like 55 years, the Spanish Stonehenge has made an appearance. This is a stone circle akin to Stonehenge without the large stone cross pieces spanning across the tops of the upright stones. This was known to be there when in the 1960s they flooded the not a lake but the Valdecanus Reservoir. Hmm. See, the decision was made to make an artificial lake for whatever reason. Don't care. So water wasn't supposed to be there per what the planet did in the past, but they flooded it. And now it's not staying full like it should. And yes, they're definitely dealing with a drought. If they weren't, the level would be where it's expected. But per the first article, they shouldn't really have this reservoir anyway. You know, if they cared about the ecosystem. Moving to the Yangtze River in China, due to the lower river levels, three Buddhist statues were revealed on the highest part of the, here we go, Foiliang Island Reef. The Xinjiang News Agency said that it's believed these are about 600 years old. Now, I'm not a Buddhist, so maybe I'm wrong, but would Buddhists create statues and place them in a location that was normally flooded, but due to a period of drought 600 years ago, obviously, you know, because of their SUVs and air conditioning, they were able to plop a few statues on a high spot? Or would it make more sense that this area hasn't always been at the same level as is generally seen in recent history? What exactly happened that caused those statues to be covered with water? Maybe the correct water level is low enough for this island to be poking out of the water. Maybe the water level is cyclical over the course of centuries, and we're back in a low cycle, like they apparently were 600 years ago. 
This article also mentions that in melting glaciers, various objects are being found, like a shoe that's 3,000 years old, apparently, and like an arrow that's 6,100 years old, apparently. Now, we can't make any wild claims based on a couple of objects, but I don't think that there's any dispute that we've had an ice age in the past, or for those that believe in the fantasy of evolution, many ice ages in the past. There were periods of time when the ice encroached much farther south than it does today, and then it retreated. So clearly the ice would have consumed locations of past civilizations and picked up objects along the way. So the only question we should really have about the allegedly shrinking ice and glaciers, which even that claim is heavily disputed, is what is the correct amount and location of the ice? Again, we're saying the ice is melting and that's bad, but that's based on what we're used to right now, and we don't want it to change. And we're going on the assumption that it'll melt completely away because we're seeing it melt right now, and all things will clearly continue in the same way that we're seeing them right now, obviously. And I don't know, maybe our planet isn't even meant to have ice caps. I kind of doubt that, at least in our current configuration of the planet, but we really don't know. So how would we know if we're supposed to have ice or not? Well, this is a question that science can't answer. Nobody has that answer. Well, nobody except for God. And if this planet isn't supposed to have ice at the poles, then eventually it won't. And that's when we'll know. Making one last jump, found on MSN.com from UPI News, headline, U.S. could face up to 10 times more life-threatening heat waves by 2100. Ah, could. One of my favorite scientific words. So, quickly summed up, a study was done where the researchers used climate models, estimates of population increase, and carbon emissions based on predictions of economic growth. And bottom line, now they can't sleep at night. They've terrified themselves by using statistical and predictive models developed by people that are confident that man-caused global warming will destroy the planet that are set up to predict exactly what they predict. So, basically, they know that man is causing the planet to heat it's done through greenhouse gases, primarily carbon dioxide, and they predicted that man will cause the planet to heat through the mechanism of greenhouse gases, primarily carbon dioxide. Oh, genius. Not sure how they, they noodled that one out, but hey, here's some grant money. So the result of their totally unbiased model is that closer to the equator will have more extreme heat days, and of course, the closer you get to the equator, the more affected by high temps you'll be. Well, in the past, as the Ice Age encroached, the Neanderthal, small-brained cavemen did something to combat the encroaching ice. They moved. If, and this is a big if, if the temperatures got to the point that there were areas that could no longer be inhabited, I'd almost hope we were smart enough to move, you know, away from those areas. I'm not confident in the least that we would be smart enough, but one can hope. That's not even what these researchers are talking about. They're saying that there might be 30 to 40 days of extreme heat in these locations by the year 2100 if we don't make massive changes. And their model predicts that much of the tropics would experience over half the year of dangerous levels of heat if we don't make those massive changes. And when I say massive, I mean more radical than anything that's been presented or proposed thus far. The researchers said that even if we followed the Paris Agreement, which, if followed, would literally decimate the United States. I mean, it would turn us into a third world country if we did what the Paris Agreement wants. We're still 
going to have three to ten times more dangerous heat periods by 2100, even if we do what the Paris Agreement says. So, if we want to save the planet and the tropics and humanity, we must go way above and beyond even the country-killing Paris Agreement. But only that, and then we can save the planet. Okay, so what do we see here? Well, we see a world where the Bible is no longer used. We see people that are positive that they're the cause of everything and the only savior humanity will ever have. We see a people that, for various reasons, want the planet to stay exactly as it is right now because that's how they want it, not because that's what it should be. And as we see an entire group of people that claim to be scientists and researchers that can't understand that they've incorrectly assumed the concept of uniformitarianism, ignoring all the evidence to the contrary in order to do so. It's hot in the summer, so clearly it'll only get hotter every summer. The ice is melting, so obviously it won't stop until it's all gone. The entire planet is experiencing drought conditions, so obviously that'll happen more and more. Never mind all of the locations around the planet that are experiencing once-in-a-fill-in-the-blank years floods. But literally, nothing in this world works in a uniformitarian way. I don't know of anything that we could definitively say is going that direction right now and will always go that direction in the future. I would say something like the planet slowing down or the moon moving away from the earth, but just the other day, we had the shortest day this planet has had in recorded history since the invention of the atomic clock. The planet, for reasons science can't explain, sped up on that day. In fact, the planet has been recorded as slowing down since the early 1800s, and in the last few years, it's been speeding up. There's literally no reason we know of that it would do that. Speculation, as one would expect, is around global warming and the melting of the glaciers at the poles. I don't know. Who knows? Could be due to ice melting, or maybe Jesus gave it a little top-off in rotational velocity. When you look down to the atomic level, we find that everything has a vibration, a frequency, a natural cycle. We know the earth has a vibration. We know that glass has a natural frequency. Steel has a natural frequency. Everything has a frequency. Why would the temperature of the planet be any different? And if you were to look at any of these vibrations on a graph, you'll see that they vibrate up and down as compared to a center line. For global temperature, the center line would be the actual correct temperature of the planet. We don't know what that line is. We don't know if our current center line is too hot or too cold as compared to the true center line. Science, and not to be confused with the science, you know, Anthony Fauci, just science has no way to know any of this. They simply want things to stay the same, and at the same time, assume that whatever trend they see today is what the trend has always been and will always be unless we save the planet. King Solomon knew this. The Bible tells us this. In Ecclesiastes 3, we read, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. And he goes on for eight verses. He knew, and we used to know, that there is a natural frequency, a natural cycle or vibration to all of creation. Unfortunately, because we've removed the truths of the Bible from the normal discourse, we lose the truths of the Bible and instead rely on our fallen minds at enmity with God to inform our opinion of what's happening and what actions we should take. And because we have such a small, finite worldview rather than an eternal worldview that's clearly all throughout the scriptures, we believe that the tiny bit of history we see in front of us is indicative of what we will always see. 
the Bible isn't a science book, but where it discusses scientific truths is correct every time. This is why you and I can look at this world through logical eyes, ask meaningful questions, not panic every time the wind blows, because we are very aware that we are living a temporary life with only a finite sliver of knowledge about this life, planet, and creation, and we know that we have a sovereign, omnipotent, eternal God that is in control, that has the whole world in his hands. So as frustrated as we, or I guess as I get with the ridiculous knee-jerk reactions, I can rest in the fact that God is in control, so I have no need to run around screaming that the sky is falling every time literally anything happens. I think I've been pretty clear in the past that I like science. The process of hypothesizing, experimenting, testing, gathering data, discovering, it can be very exciting for ner people like me. <clears throat> but you know, I'll be honest, I kind of want science to just, I don't know, chill out for a little bit, take a break for a little while. Over the last couple years, I've seen science lose its mind and, and its soul, and now we're just doing things because we can with absolutely no thought into if we should. And yes, I'm well aware that's basically what Ian Malcolm said in Jurassic Park. I mean, look, it's accurate. What can I say? There's, there's no way around it. For the last 15 years in my current job, anytime we make a change to anything, whether it's to the process or a piece of equipment, a procedure, whatever, we send the change through a formal process called a management of change. In this process, the person that wants to make the change has to have all those ducks in a row, what the change is, why we're doing the change, all supporting documentation, a description of what this change will do, as well as risks and benefits. And then there's a large workbook of questions that must be answered, which it helps you think through the change and the effect it might have. And then we send it to a series of reviewers, chosen based on the kind of change it is, and they review all of the documentation and answer various questions in that workbook. After all of that is approved, it then has to go to the process owner, who reviews everything and either approves or denies. Now, all along the way, the initiator and all of the reviewers are creating action items that must be done either before or after the change, which could address any aspect of anything this change affects. Now, even after all of that, once in a while, the change goes wrong. I personally caused about $20,000 worth of damage to a piece of equipment after a fully reviewed and approved change because we were simply not able to foresee the failure mechanism. But in nearly all cases, the changes we make are done safely, deliberately, and transparently, and do not compromise safety, environment, health, or reliability. And it's all because of the stringent and exhaustive measures we take to ensure the change is safe. And because of this process, not all changes are even approved. Some get rejected because we just can't be sure that the change will be beneficial, or at least not detrimental. Okay. I know that was probably way too much information about my job, but the point of all that is this. I think science should maybe adopt a process like that before they just start, you know, doing things. Now, I, like you, realize that the COVID-19 virus was just a random jump from a bat or a pangolin to a human via a Chinese wet market. But let's just say hypothetically, that it was actually gain-of-function experimentation and testing of an animal virus in a lab by scientists funded by, well, let's stay in our fantasy world here, shall we, funded by a little troll to force it to adapt and jump to humans, which then was released by accident 
or not, into the human population. I know I'm talking crazy, but let's pretend for fun, shall we? Now, if that were the case, did they do any sort of hypothesizing about what could happen if they did this, if they they went down this road? And now, I think I'm like a lot of people, every time I see a news story about scientists discovered, and then fill in the blank, well, it sends a chill up my spine and makes me very hungry. And that last part may have nothing to do with the news. That, that may just be me. I'll admit that. Well, found on the Telegraph via MSN.com, headline, Scientists discover humans produce an invisible aura of air-cleansing molecules. The first sentence of this article states, quote, Humans have an invisible aura around our bodies which could be cleaning the air we breathe, scientists have found. Now, I've definitely heard that first part before, but I've never heard it connected with the phrase, which could be cleaning the air we breathe. No, I've, I've heard quite the opposite about the, uh, the invisible aura around our bodies. But let's see what this says. It sounds promising. I mean, how could this possibly go wrong? So apparently there's something called a hydroxyl radical, and I'm not going to go deep into the chemistry because it's been like a thousand years since I had chemistry, but this is basically a hydrogen and oxygen atom that are bound together, and they're in search of another hydrogen atom so they can create a water molecule, since the oxygen and hydrogen together are incomplete. Well, apparently... These have been known of for a long time. I guess the sun actually creates these. They're short-lived as they quickly find that missing hydrogen, but they're known to neutralize toxic molecules and clean up the atmosphere. Well, what science... What science has found is that the human body actually has this oxidation field around their bodies. However, and here we go, quote... Experts do not know if the field is a force for good or bad because the impact of the aura remains unknown. Professor Jonathan Williams of the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry in Germany, who is the lead author of this study, says that this field, quote, may be cleaning the air before I breathe in, but we don't know. The other possibility he could think of is that our human aura could actually not make things less toxic but more toxic as we breathe in. So Prof. John's conclusion is, quote, more research has to be done. I mean, look, I set a lot of my own direction, my own goals at work, but can you imagine just saying, oh, I've discovered a thing. You should pay me to, you know, keep looking at this thing. So his testing thus far has consisted of putting four people in a sterile room with oxygen masks, measuring the hydroxyl radicals, and then adding ozone, which is three atoms of oxygen joined together, into the room. And they saw a dramatic spike in the radicals. So that means... uh, something. Uh, Just FYI, we don't generally deal with ozone on the surface of the planet. The ozone that's present is pretty much negligible. Less than one part per million in the air we breathe. So I'm really not sure exactly what he's testing. Well, Professor John then says, quote, When I'm breathing in, there is chemistry going on, which is changing emissions from the sofa I am sitting on into other compounds. We simply do not know whether those compounds are more or less harmful than the sofa's emissions themselves. 
He then added, quote, there's an immediate health implication to this research. We need to study them rather than just measuring what a sofa emits. We need to measure what a sofa and a person make together as the interaction of the emissions with our field is more important. And to make you feel even more uncomfortable, he and his team are now testing dogs and soon other animals to see if they have this aura as well. <laughs> more animals. Can we stop? Stop with the animals. So a couple initial thoughts. First, I don't trust what he's trying to actually do here. I, I don't trust that he's actually trying to do anything good with this, as that doesn't bring in the money. What are the outcomes of this? Who knows? Probably something against, I don't know, fossil fuels, since ozone is most prevalent in smog, and probably something with materials we use to make couches or whatever, because our aura doesn't like them. Yeah, we'll have to go with all natural hemp and tofu couches or something. I don't know. Second, we've been humans for thousands of years. If you're a young earth creationist, or as I call it, someone who's correct, we've been humans for about 6,000 years. If you're an evolutionist, or scientifically and logically wrong, it's been much longer than that. But all of a sudden, we may be in danger breathing huh, because of something we never knew was there before. That's interesting, isn't it? It's a weird place to be for a lot of us these days, to not trust science. Now, notice I'm not saying that I deny science. I 100% believe in science. I simply just don't trust what it is that we're being told constitutes science these days, and especially not the results and recommendations based on what's being passed off as science. The word science means to know, but I have very little confidence that these alleged scientists actually know anything, or even more frightening, that they care if they know anything. Now, I've always been skeptical on anything they assume or model and claim as fact, as a model is nothing but a computerized opinion, but after the last couple of years, I'm skeptical on just about anything and everything that's coming out of the field of science. Scientific discoveries like this used to be interesting, and now it's just terrifying. My first thought is, uh, what are they going to try to do to us now based on this? It quickly followed up by... I wonder how much grant money they're getting. So what happened? Did science change or did I? Am I just more untrusting of everything and everyone? Well, yes, but that's not the problem. Science did actually change. They've completely eliminated the morals and ethics found only in Christianity from their process. And you may argue that science and Christianity are two distinct things. One is fact and the other is fantasy, to which I'd say, well, not all of science is fantasy. Uh, see what I did there? But no, even without a belief in God, for most of our history, the morals of Christianity have guided the way mankind has gone about doing science. The history of science is very theistic. More specifically, it's a field championed by Christians. The scientific revolution is generally set in the period from 1300 to 1700 AD. The earliest scientists, although they weren't called that at the time, looked at this world and saw that it looked ordered. Things made sense. The world as they saw it looked like it was intelligible. Because of that, it gave the appearance that it must have had a designer, since it looked designed. <laughs> Crazy, I know. So these individuals wanted to discover everything they could about the design, and the order, the creation, so as to understand the creator more and better. Based on this, I'd say that 
the scientific revolution should be called the modern-day scientific revolution. I mean, science has been going on since nearly the beginning of creation. When you look at the Bible and you think of city building, farming, animal husbandry, metalworking, shipbuilding, predicting the weather, understanding the seasons, studying the stars, I mean, man, for nearly our entire existence, has been trying to understand the creation. They've been doing science. So see, science actually started out as honoring to God, as looking for even deeper ways to give God glory and praise for his handiwork. But as with everything Satan does, he takes godly things, praiseworthy things, and he twists it just enough, slow enough, that now we no longer look at science as a gift from God. Rather, we now look at it as proof that there is no God. So scientists today, whether they want to admit it or not, have Christians to thank for their roots. And for centuries, they worked under the principles of Christianity, looking for ways to do good, to make things better, to help humanity, to understand the world. Today, however, by and large, science is done to get a paycheck and possibly some fame and notoriety if you discover, claim, or make the right thing. Even more, science and discoveries seem to coincide more and more with who's paying that check, or with the ending of a grant, or with a political agenda. To be an honest broker in a field of science is becoming harder and harder. To be a Christian in a field of science is even more difficult. Like what we're seeing in society, the gulf between Christians who are focused in fields of science and what's generally accepted as science is widening. And sadly, we see Christians and scientific fields compromise what they should know is truth as given to them in the Bible. They compromise with the world's science in order to try to fit in and to be accepted and acceptable. So what do we, as Christians, do with this? Well, speaking in generalities, we must know what we believe and be unwavering in that belief. We are not to compromise with the world. We are to bring everything back to the Bible and test it. I'd also love to see a mass of uncompromising Christians flood all areas of scientific study and start taking back not only what we started, but what we own as those that actually believe in truth. With regard to this story specifically, <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. First, what an amazing discovery that God apparently designed our bodies to not only fight viruses and toxins on the inside, but to actually put some sort of naturally occurring shield around us to protect us from stuff from even entering our bodies. I mean, that's simply amazing. That's something new you can praise God for when you say your prayers next. On the less positive side of things, since COVID, and, and probably before, but it's become clearly evident since COVID, we've seen story after story of discoveries of this thing that will kill all of humanity and that thing that will poison us and the other thing that will give us all cancer. And the solution, our savior, always seems to come down to money, big money, in the pockets of either the pharmaceutical companies for a new drug or shot that will, you know, protect us, nor we see the mandated replacement of this with that, which always seems to be more expensive and less useful. So my recommendation would be to uh, stay vigilant, question everything. Don't just accept what the media reports about the latest scientific discovery or scientific solution. Test what you're being told to believe with the only source of truth, the Bible. And if the two conflict, be willing to refuse to just go along to get along. Our illustrious, eloquent President Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. gave us the key here, believe it or not. 
he said, well, he babbled, eh, he mumbled, choose truth over facts. Well, we all laughed at that. But with regard to biblical truth versus alleged scientific facts, yeah, yeah, we need to choose truth over facts every single time. Look, we've all done it. We're all guilty. I don't think anyone means to do it. Sometimes it it just happens. I mean, we're all humans, right? From time to time, we, we just can't help it. It is embarrassing to talk about, though, and let's not even talk about how embarrassing it is to be caught in the middle of it. Man, woman, old, young, we're all susceptible. Of course, others act like they never do it. <laughs> Liars. And everyone has advice for you for how to avoid doing it again in the future. I think at this point we all know what I'm talking about. Do I even need to say it? <sighs> Fine, here goes. Sometimes, in moments of weakness, at points where we're just not focused on the struggle, maybe we're tired, maybe we're frustrated, whatever, but every once in a while we simply just, we, we just, we just miss the forest for the trees. There, I said it. Are you happy now? It's not like it's a sin or anything. Well, I'm afraid that this is what we're faced with today. Found on Wired.com headline, If humans went extinct, would a similar species evolve? Okay, some background first. This article is actually a sales pitch. You know, when you come right down to it, it's an adaptation of a book entitled What We Owe the Future by author William McCaskill. Now, Mr. McCaskill is about a 15-year-old high school student with a new beard that's desperately trying to come in, according to how I interpret his picture on Amazon. But according to his Wikipedia entry, he's a 35-year-old Scottish man who happens to be an associate professor in philosophy and a research fellow at the Global Priorities Institute at the University of Oxford. In comparison, I just had to have Microsoft Word tell me that the word Scottish contains two T's. <laughs> so this intellectual battle should be fun for everyone. Mr. McCaskill, apparently in his free time, is also an expert in altruism. Now, altruism is simply having a selfless concern for others. And he's also a co-founder and the current president of the Center for Effective Altruism, a movement that encourages giving what we can to the most effective charities, attempting to get people to commit to donating 10% of their income to said charities. Interesting. So the premise of this article is based on the question asked in the title. If humans disappeared from this planet, from existence, would another human-like species, and by that he means a being with intelligence, consciousness, its ethics, etc., would something else evolve and become the dominant species of this or some other planet? From an evolutionary worldview, it's a very good question. But the question itself is actually a forest, and there are vast forests contained all throughout this article. So, being as it's not a long article, I'll kind of walk through it bit by bit and try to point out the absolute lack of logic and the clear missing of the forests due to the deconstructing of the theory of evolution into small enough component parts or trees for him to hold up as plausible and factual. As always, this is what I hope to spur you on to do, to, to think to question, to spot the illogical nature of what is presented to the population at large as indisputable fact. So, here we go. He starts with his belief that it's very possible that we, the human race, destroy ourselves, with conventional warfare turning into atomic, to nuclear, and now the even more real fear that a bioweapon, like engineered weaponized viruses, 
We humans seem to be very good at coming up with ways to eliminate we humans. So let's say we do it. What's next for the planet or for the universe? We've evolved to develop technology, discover science, create art, and build entire cities and countries of civilizations. Would something else here or somewhere else evolve to do this? He quickly breaks down a couple absolute, indisputable scientific facts. First, it took 200 million years for humans to evolve from the first mammals. Second, the split in the evolutionary tree for Homo sapiens, or humans, from chimps took place about 8 million years ago. And third, the sun still has hundreds of millions of years before it goes supernova and, you know, fries the earth. So, based on these facts, if humans were to destroy themselves, there's plenty of time for something else to evolve and take over. If chimps were to still exist, we already know it only takes 8 million years to get from them to a Homo sapien-like being. If chimps were gone but mammals survived, in a short 200 million years, we could get to something like be humans again. But he says to hold up, what we don't know is how the steps to get to what we are now actually happened, and how unlikely it was for humans to evolve. Well, okay, I guess I'd agree with that, from his view. He then cites, as backing evidence to his question of how unlikely a second round of evolution occurring like this again, he cites the Fermi Paradox. This says that in the 13.5 billion years we know the universe has existed, there must be hundreds of millions of planets similar to ours that are in what are termed habitable zones. But if that's the case, why haven't we had visitations by some highly advanced interstellar civilization yet? Well, in answer to this, he speculates that maybe, just maybe, something about our evolution was, or is, just very unlikely to occur. Maybe even improbable. Some of the steps he finds to be the potential sticking points, arguing against the evolution of species on other planets are, first, quote, the creation of the first replicators from inorganic matter. Now, you and I can read that as sustainable life coming from non-life. Second, quote, the evolution of simple cells into complex cells. Third, quote, the evolution of sexual reproduction. And fourth, Maybe even the idea of, quote, the evolution of a species distinct from others by virtue of being unusually intelligent, hyper-cooperative, culturally evolving, and capable of speech and language. In fact, research recently done at the Future of Humanity Institute, which, side note, is one of my absolute favorite humanity institutes, found that when you calculate all of these improbabilities of these evolutionary transitions, maybe it's not so crazy to think that the universe is empty of other life. So, Mr. McCaskill deduces that the way we overcame these seemingly impossible hurdles is some, uh, is some luck, some well-placed luck. He also speculates that maybe there were steps that needed more luck than other steps, and when that step was actually achieved, the rest was smooth sailing, you know, relatively speaking. 
For instance, maybe the really tough hurdle was the creation, no, not the, the popping into existence of replicators, or life, from inorganic materials, or non-life, once that non-living water that was raining on the non-living rocks got struck by the non-living lightning and created life, the rest was just a nice downhill coast to humanity. He gives some other examples as well. Because of this reliance on luck to do its thing, we can't be confident that this process would ever happen again. Further, he speculates that, quote, if some step in our evolutionary history was extremely improbable, well, then we probably shouldn't just assume or expect that there'd be intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. Or to argue his point more basically, maybe hundreds of millions of potential planets and billions of years just resulted in just bad luck for practically an infinite number of other possible chances. I mean, who among us hasn't had a string of bad luck, right? So he sums it up by saying that for 13 billion years, there was no life in the universe. Then, 500 million years ago, conscious creatures evolved, but they didn't know that they were conscious, not yet. And then, only a few thousand years ago, beings evolved that could understand who they are, what the universe is, and, and develop everything we know today, even things we take for granted like math and writing. But as time goes on, we develop more ways to destroy ourselves, and if we do that, quote, the universe's self-understanding might be permanently lost. With the extreme, and I'd add extremely unlucky, possibility that the universe just reverts back to what it was for the first nine billion years, quote, cold, empty, and dead. Okay, so look, I want to approach this as more of a short-form kind of thing. Of course, for, for a long-winded person, short is relative. Go with me here. What I'm saying is that I'm not going to go deep into debunking evolution. I could, I'm just not. I'm not planning on a theological treatise on creation. Again, I could, I'm just not going to. I'm hoping that you came up with some questions, had some points where you said, hey, hold up a minute, to some of the points that this author made, and maybe you can compare what you thought to the list I've come up with. And that's what I want to do give you a list of points of illogical thought that I spotted in this article. First, one thing that drives me nuts about the theory of the evolution of life is that the assumption is built in, without anyone saying it, that there was a single path of evolution. From time to time, the gotcha question will be asked, why don't we see chimps evolving to humans today? To which the somewhat flippant answer is always, evolution takes a long time. But really, we're saying that in hundreds of millions or billions of years, a second lightning strike didn't occur somewhere that started a process of a different form of life. Luck or no luck, that seems pretty arrogant to claim it to be true. Second, what about this luck thing? He anthropomorphizes or gives human characteristics to both luck and the universe. But even in a humanist, non-religious view, there's no such thing as luck. There are probabilities. Various probabilities have been calculated for various stages of evolution. Answers in Genesis has a short video, link in the notes, that said that the probability of a relatively simple protein to develop is about 1 in 10 to the 130th power. That's one chance out of a 1 followed by 130 zeros. And that's making the assumption that the amino acids already existed. The probability that the amino acids used for living organisms were created from non-life is basically zero. It's infinitely small. 
Now third, although the probability is infinitely small that life begins, over billions of years and at least hundreds of millions of potentially habitable planets, we have essentially an infinite number of chances for life to start. So why aren't there other civilizations? Fourth, or maybe there are. But science seems to make the assumption that the evolution of life on other planets is either at the cellular microbe stage very early in the process, or they're much, much more highly advanced than us with millions more years of evolution and development, so they should be popping in for a visit, you know, anytime. We never seem to think that maybe another planet has living creatures basically at the same place we are today. Now, of course, I don't believe that other life is out there, but coming from a humanist worldview, why do they always assume one extreme or the other? Fifth, speaking of habitable planets, you can look virtually anywhere and find out why the Earth is perfectly designed for life. Some of the facts that if they were any different at all, life couldn't exist are available water, available land, compatible carbon-based consumable food, the size and distance and orbit of the moon in relation to the earth, the size and distance of the sun and our orbit around it, the gravity, the rotational speed, which dictates a lot of our weather patterns, the magnetic field, the atmosphere, both the ability to shield us from incoming space debris, as well as harmful energy from the sun, and also the very specific ratio of gases that makes up the air we breathe and the specific position of our solar system so as to shield our sun, all the planets, and the Earth from the gravitational pull of each other or other stars and planets. And that's just a quick partial list. Sixth, and finally, why would it matter if humanity disappeared? From a humanist worldview, when you die, you're done anyway. Plus, what have we really contributed to the universe? An ever-increasing amount of space junk? I mean, that's literally about it. We haven't improved it. We haven't shared our knowledge. We haven't been able to send a manned ship any farther than the moon. So, Mr. McCaskill says that the universe would suffer if we disappeared. And I have to ask, why? Or, or how? Or in what way? Because, no, it wouldn't. It just literally wouldn't. And if you were to ask the environmental fascists... Humans are the biggest virus on the planet, and they'd prefer that we all just disappear. You know, so Mother Earth and all her animal chillins could just live peacefully without humans screwing things up. So, did you have any of the same questions, any of those same points? Alright, well, let me wrap it up with this. The probability of life coming from non-life is basically zero. But since time is their god, and the amount of time they believe has passed is, for all intents and purposes infinite, the evolution of life should have happened and be happening all over all of the time, but it's not. Similarly, depending on who does the calculation, the probability of there being a god ranges from zero to absolutely definite. To believe that an infinite, omnipotent, creator god exists requires faith, exactly the same as believing in evolution. They both take immense faith, just faith in different things. But once you get past the mechanism of life creation, either rain, rocks, and lightning, or an intelligent god, that's where the probabilities change. The probability of each step of evolution is equally, infinitely impossible as every other step. Evolution is statistically impossible.
But once your faith is changed, enlightened, and you realize that God created life out of non-life, every other thing we see in this life, in this planet, is highly probable. And in many cases, it's an absolute certainty. So this author was right there. He, he was, maybe is, so close to seeing that the theory of evolution, the false concept of science that he's believed in for so long, is infinitely impossible. From there, he can then start his search into why humanity really exists. And then from that point, he would no longer have to worry about humanity destroying humanity. With a sovereign God in control and enough information in the Bible to know that everything will be destroyed eventually, but in God's timing and will be remade perfectly, we really don't have to worry about what would happen if humans went extinct. Additionally, we don't have to pretend like our presence is important to the universe. The universe simply does not care if we're here or not, but that doesn't mean we don't have a purpose. Now, from an evolutionary humanist worldview, we are literally pointless and purposeless. From a Christian worldview, we have worth, and our chief end is to love God and enjoy Him forever, and ultimately to give all glory, praise, and worship to the God that created us all, and created a perfect place for us to exist, and created everything else in the universe for our wonder, excitement, and enjoyment, and to display His creation, His awesome power and majesty, which again gives all glory to God. If Mr. McCaskill would honestly, logically ask the questions he's raised and would diligently search for the possible answers, not discount entire worldviews because of his bias, he could then see the forest. He would see that there is really only one possible answer. Furthermore, if he would ask why he cares about being altruistic, a very anti-evolution viewpoint, as all these people he's trying to help are nothing but competition from an evolutionary worldview, or if he would ask why his donation commitment number of 10% seems to be the right number, he would literally keep coming back to only one possible answer. Once any human finds the answers to the questions how and why, questions that we all have, that's when we can start to truly live with purpose, rather than just exist in fear. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. God bless.